A judge rules against Miami's effort to block a commission candidate. Broward College has a new acting president, and Haiti finally has a multinational security force. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at a court decision to stop the city of Miami's attempt to keep a business owner from running for the District 1 commission seat, the one that was held by the recently indicted Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla. We'll also examine Broward College's uncertain future after it suddenly loses a president and picks another. And we'll talk with South Florida's Haitian-American congresswoman about the U.N. sending a police mission to gang-ravaged Haiti. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or by going to WLRN.org. Well, as if the city of Miami needed more controversy. First, we have a civil jury finding Commissioner Joe Carollo guilty of harassing businessmen in Little Havana. Then Miami Mayor Francis Suarez comes under investigation for moonlighting as a consultant for a developer doing business with the city and for receiving expensive gifts from other rich folks. Last month, Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla is arrested on a slew of corruption charges. Could the Magic City's civic optics be any murkier? Turns out, yes, they can. The city is now fighting a judge's recent ruling that a Miami business owner, Miguel Gabela, can in fact run next month for Diaz de la Portilla's District 1 commission seat. The judge agreed that Gabela's candidacy should not have been excluded under the city's new district map. Gabela says by appealing the decision, the city is undemocratically trying to keep him from running against Diaz de la Portilla. Joining me now in the studio to help on untangle yet another Miami mess is WLRN's government accountability reporter, Joshua Ceballos. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well, Tim. Thank you. So, Josh, once again, Miami's notorious district map is front and center in a controversy that just doesn't make the city look all that good. What's in dispute this time? I mean, at the heart of this is the fact that the city was ordered to redraw the map earlier this year, and, and that's what really started this mess, correct? Yeah, so just a quick refresher. Yeah. The, the the city was sued in federal court at the end of last year by a group of plaintiffs uh, over their, their redistricted map, uh, claiming that it was racially gerrymandered. And so the city was ordered by the court to redraw its map. They did so in June. Right. But when they did that, um, Miguel Gabela, a local business owner, he, he's been running... He's been campaigning to run against Alex Diaz de la Portilla for District 1, District one yeah. uh, for many months. He came to that me that special meeting where the city was redrawing its map and said, hey, guys, in this new map that you've drawn um, to the city commission, you've carved my house out of District 1. Yeah. Um, and according to the city's rules, you have to live in the district where you're going to run. Um, for for a year, for a year, yeah. for a year. Mm -hmm. So he he made it clear to them, hey, under your map, my house right here is carved out of District One and put into District Three. Please don't do this. They went ahead and they did it, and so he sued in federal. Uh, I'm sorry, in in circuit court. Um, so that's that's at the heart of the issue here was um, that whole map making process that right. moved him out. And since that 
controversy since that meeting, Gabella actually moved into another property that he owned that's right. in District 1. And that's where some of the contention comes up. Right. The contention comes up because he did not move into that new uh, uh, residence until August. Right. right? Okay. That's correct. The city is saying, well, you should have moved into it in June uh, in order to, be, to, to become eligible. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Help me understand their argument. There. So the so the city's argument is f that for about, you know, 40 something days, Gabella lived outside of District 1. Mm -hmm. um, he lived in, in District 3. So uh, under their interpretation of the charter, he didn't live uh, within the district for the full year prior to the um, qualifying period. Okay. So he shouldn't be a candidate. He says, I would have been qualified, but you carved me out. And this map was at issue in the courts the in the court they were fighting over this mm -hmm. so how was i supposed to know and but he he moved into a new a new house and he's like okay i should qualify they say no okay now so why then did the miami-dade circuit judge recently agree with gabella in in the end yeah so the the circuit judge uh did agree with gabella and ruled in his favor and said and said you know, he had every intent to be in the district to, to uh, meet all the requirements. Right. He lived there before. Then this this map got changed and he moved into uh, a new property within the district. He at no point did he try to violate the charter. It just so happened that all of this mess kind of kept him out. So the judge said based on his intent and his actions, he should be able to run. And so, now the city is fighting. The, so, so now the city of Miami is appealing the judge's ruling. And it's actually saying that the judge himself is in violation of Miami's residency rules. Right. So, yeah. So the city's argument, they they appealed. Um, and the, the plaintiff in the case is Todd Hannon, the, the city clerk. Um, they're saying that the that the. Based on the judge's ruling uh, under their interpretation of the ruling, it seems like the judge is saying, oh, you can live in this in within your district that you're going to run for at any during, for any one year period, right? So let's say somebody lived in District Two uh, in 1995 for a year, and then they moved away. Maybe they lived in Broward for all this time after, and and they're saying under this judge's interpretation, because they lived there for a year in 1995, yeah. now they can run. Now. Miguel Gavela, though, sees something a little more nefarious going on. Is is that a correct uh, a way to put it? He seems to feel that there's more of a... This isn't just legalistic. This is sort of a concerted political effort on the city's part to perhaps keep him from running against Diaz de la Portilla next month for this District 1 seat. Yeah, that's that's definitely his contention. Um, him, uh, there, he's saying that the city wants to litigate on behalf of Diaz de la Portilla basically to keep mm -hmm. his opponent off the off the ballot uh yeah. Gabella was the front-running opponent for uh Alex Diaz de la Portilla in the previous election um so that's that's his contention is that the, the city right. is doing this on purpose so that he can't run against and AGLP. to be fair to the city is there really any evidence though to substantiate that claim on his part that he's being dealt with undemocratically in that regard there's been no evidence so far of you know say communications from diaz de la portilla to the mm -hmm. city attorney or to anyone in the city saying you need to keep this guy out um, however, to Gabella's point, he did point out to the commission during that special meeting, hey, please don't do this because my house is here. You don't have to yeah. invite this lawsuit. And they went forward and did it anyway. Right. So, again, I mean, it, it doesn't put the city in the in the in the fairest light. But uh, again, the most important thing is that this needs to be resolved fairly quickly because the ballots are going out next week. Right. Yeah. So the uh, early voting starts very soon in Miami. And 
I think no matter what, Gabella is going to be on the ballot. So what what could happen is um, if he's not qualified, if the court decides that he's not qualified, the the supervisor of elections can send a little slip of paper or something that says this candidate is not qualified. You you cannot like a vote for him would not be counted. Right. And he's going to be on there. Okay. We'll see. Joshua Ceballos is WLRN's government accountability reporter. Josh, thanks as always. My pleasure, Tim. Still to come, Broward College has a new president, but an uncertain future. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or by going to WLRN.org. Broward County was fairly stunned last month when Broward College President Greg Hale abruptly resigned after five years in the position. Hale, who is also a deputy chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, was considered an innovative community college leader. And he has offered only the vaguest of explanations for his resignation. Earlier this week, Broward College trustees selected a new acting president, Henry Mack III, a supporter of Governor Ron DeSantis' efforts to bring more conservative, classical values to Florida higher education. But Mack and the college could not agree on contract terms. So the trustees announced their second choice, former Broward College Administrator Barbara Bryan, who did accept the president's job. She is Broward College's first female president, and she takes over one of the country's largest colleges, serving some 56,000 students, but one facing a raft of challenges. What are your thoughts about the future of Broward College? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III, who's been following all these developments. How are you, Gerard? Hey, I'm pretty good. Thanks, Tim. I should just quickly mention that we did reach out to Dr. Bryan to talk with us, but she declined. First, Gerard, do we have any clearer sense of why Greg Hale suddenly resigned a few weeks ago? I mean, do we know if if it had anything to do, for example, with Florida's current political climate and Governor DeSantis's efforts to reshape higher education to fit his more conservative faith-based agenda? Well, really, Tim, all we have to go on is Hale's resignation letter. He hasn't spoken to press, and his resignation letter was pretty vague, like you said, about why he was leaving. He, um, you know, mentioned a lot of the good he did at the college, a lot of the funding, um, but he did mention the new board, uh, three of which were appointed in the last six months. And, you know, he said, while there's no plan for transition, I think this would be a good time for it. And he left. Okay. So anything else is just speculation at this point. Either way, it's hard to ignore the fact that earlier this week, Broward College trustees originally chose to replace Greg Hale with an ally of the governor's so-called classical education mission. That was, as I said, Henry the Mac III. Who is he and why did the trustees select him? I mean, a, a big reason seemed to be that they felt he would be better plugged into the governor's office and the legislature in Tallahassee, right? Yeah, very few people following the story um, were shocked. I mean, you have a board, four or five of them were appointed by Governor DeSantis and Henry Mack, who is a DeSantis ally, who was also appointed 
to uh, chan- uh, to be a chancellor at the Florida Department of Education. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where he was. Um, he was a supre- uh, senior chancellor there, and then he was also a lobbyist for the Southern Group right. um, for education issues. Education lobbyist. Right. He had mm-hmm. also um, he had worked at the college as the ac- uh, associate dean for academic affairs, and he was an associate vice president as well. So, why in the end did Broward College's deal with Mac fall through? They said they could not reach uh, an agreement on compensation or how long he would be in that position. He had indicated to press that he wanted to apply for the full-time permanent position once the interim position um, kind of had run its course and they had done. They were going to do a national search or are going to do a national search for their next president. But um, they couldn't come to an agreement on how much he was going to get paid and how long yeah. he was going to serve. I mean, his, his salary demand was a little bit outside the window that they... <laughs> And presented, right? That's what it seemed like, yeah. Yeah. So their second choice was Barbara Bryan, and she was, in fact, able to come to a contract agreement with the board to serve, am I correct, six months as the acting president? Right. That's the plan. And Barbara Bryan, during her interview, um, was pretty clear about not wanting the permanent position. Uh, okay. She's, she's right. semi-retired. She's the CEO of an education consulting firm. She's been in higher education for over three decades, a lot of which were with Broward College. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does not want, or she did not indicate that she wanted the permanent position when it came up. Quite. Did she give any reason why she may not want to be the permanent replacement for Hale? I think... Um, you know, her lifestyle. I think, like she had said, she was semi-retired. Yeah. Um, and she, she just put her time in. I think she wanted to come in and be the, the quick fix um, so the college can get back on their feet and find a new leader. All right. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the future of Broward College and its new president. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Gerard, there's a chance, um, as, as, we, as we've been discussing here, there probably is no chance, I should say, I should correct myself, that, that Brian could be kept on longer than six months. Um, what then do, is Broward College then looking at after her six months interim presidency? It, it, it will obviously have to go back to the drawing board. Does it look like maybe Mac might be interested in applying again? Where, where does this take Broward College after six months? Yeah, they're going to do a national search for um, their next president. And, you know, I'm sure the wheels are already rolling for that. Um, But whoever that is, they're going to come into a college with a lot of issues. Right. Um, Hopefully we're going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully Brian can kind of hold it together or get them through the next six months or so yeah. um, until then. But that's that's what they're looking at. No, as you said, Brian and whoever replaces her as the ultimate permanent uh, president uh, to replace Hale, they, they, they face quite a few challenges um, in running Broward College. First, though, before we get to that, I, I want to ask you, why does Broward College seem to suffer from a lesser reputation, let's say, compared to, say, Miami-Dade College here, e- even though its mission in South Florida seems just as important? Yeah, and it's about, you know, it's just under the size of Miami-Dade College. I think you have to look at a few things. The higher education infrastructure in Broward um, is not 
there the way it is in Miami that, you know, Miami has the big right. public university, Florida International, and then also has UM. So UM, uh, right. MDC mm-hmm. kind of serves as a, a feeder school sometimes to those schools. And mm-hmm. for Broward, they don't have that. They have the private college Nova. And then um, the next closest college is just to the north in Boca Raton. And Miami-Dade College also benefited from the high profile that its former president, Eduardo Padron, gave it. I mean, it, it became like this, uh, this, this showcase of what community colleges could become in, in America. Broward College just never really has seemed to have that kind of oomph behind it, right? Yeah. I mean, it kind of speaks to the larger problems of education in Broward and um, mm-hmm. the kind of trend with education and government and Broward, which is kind of playing catch up to Miami-Dade a lot of the time. Yeah. But back to the challenges Brian faces then. Chief among them is declining enrollment. Is that a is that a correct assessment? Yeah. So um, during the interview process, uh, the board asked the same series of questions and, and presented all of the candidates with the same series of, of facts and what they're getting themselves into, basically. And <laughs> over the past five years, uh, the enrollment's been down 28 percent. That's more than a quarter. Any any good explanation for that? <laughs> Not that they gave. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't think, see one either. In the, in the, I, th- I think COVID, COVID probably plays into that. Yeah. I can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, but building that enrollment is, is definitely going to be a, uh, a, a chief challenge, and one that really can't be addressed in six months by, by Brian. So, no, yeah. no. But there are certainly others, other challenges, like a, a relative lack of campus life and student engagement seems to be a big one too, right? That was probably the biggest thing we heard from um, student representatives was uh-huh. that um, there's not a lot of places to, you know, Barbara Bryan said it, there's not a lot of places to hang out for students. There's, yeah. um, you know, when you have engagement, you have retention in colleges. You have kids coming back year after year. And Broward College struggles with that. And a big part of that is they cut their athletics program during the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. So there's not, not enough life outside the classroom. And that probably has something perhaps to do with the declining enrollment, would you say? Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you're looking at a place, you know, you're going to maybe look north to Palm Beach County and or look south to Miami-Dade. Then exactly. For, for that. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Is there any fear that, given the fact that the Broward College trustees were so ready and willing to put one of DeSantis's quote, classical education allies at the helm, is there any fear that Brian might feel pressure to move the college in that sort of academic direction herself, albeit in the six months that, sh- that she's going to have at the helm? Well, I think you mentioned it. She's got six months. I think what they're going to focus on is the immediate fixes. Um, mm-hmm. There's really low morale for faculty, probably lower than ever with the lack of communication. They uh, mentioned low pay being an issue, but also the turbulence at the top. What's the lack of communication that you're talking about? What, 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 why is there that low faculty morale? Another challenge, I guess we should point out. Right. Well, what faculty Senate members said was that the communication from the top wasn't there. The transparency wasn't there. There's been um, obviously a lot of turnover with the board of trustees mm-hmm. and, again, the low pay. Um, but I, th- I think what Brian is going to focus on right away is obviously the accreditation that's coming up from right. from SACS. Um, uh, SACS being? Uh, the Southern Association of Colleges. Uh, I'm blanking on yeah, that. No, no, I, no, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, 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 it's the uh, accrediting body, the body, body who accredits the, um, the college um, yeah. and lets them give out degrees. And, um, you know, they've got. And why is that a concern that the the Broward College? Why is that a concern for Broward College, that accreditation process? Well, it's a concern for every every college when it comes up. It's just, you know, if if they don't pass, they 
cease. Yeah. Um, but there's also an impending budget and legislative session. Uh, Broward College handles about 200 million in their right. budget. Uh-huh. Um, so they've got to figure out how to handle and divvy that out. Um, and a lot of that funding comes from Tallahassee. So the legislative session is incredibly important. Right. So again, the governor in Tallahassee looming large over another uh, college, uh, Florida college and university. And just quickly in this last minute we have left, um, Gerard, I also, because this is Broward County, I, I wanted to ask, how was the start of Broward County's new K through 12 school year going after all the controversies that, that school system there faced last academic year? You know, you've seen uh, Superintendent Peter Licata, I think he's been there just under 100 days, uh, really focusing on um, all the construction projects that have been so delayed in Broward County. Um, so trying to get a lot of those projects done, that's one of the big promises he came in with. And one of the things he pitched himself on is, I can get these projects done. Yeah. Um, they just went to their legislative delegation and asked them, to um, help fund a school-wide police department, which is something they focused on. So okay, that's great. where they're at. All right. But he's still enjoying a honeymoon, as you mentioned. Okay. <laughs> he's in a bit of a honeymoon right. phase, I think. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Many thanks, as always, Gerard. Of course. Still to come, the U.N. finally approves a multinational security force for Haiti. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Tim Paget, welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or by going to WLRN.org. A year ago this month, Haiti's interim government called on the U.N. to send some sort of multinational security force to neutralize the violent gangs that now control much of the country and almost all of its capital, Port-au-Prince. This week, the U.N. Security Council finally approved an international police assistance mission to be led by Kenya. The effort is supported by the U.S., which has pledged to fund it but not take part in it, and will include Caribbean neighbors such as Jamaica and EU members such as Italy. But how the force will engage Haiti's heavily armed gangs isn't quite clear yet, nor is the scope of its one-year task. The only thing certain is how urgent it is. Haiti's gangs are responsible for some 2,500 murders this year alone and have suffocated the country's economy. This development obviously resonates in South Florida. Do you support a multinational security force in Haiti? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss this is someone who does support the Haiti security mission, Haitian-American Congresswoman Sheila Sherfulis McCormick. She's a Democrat and represents the 20th Congressional District, including Palm Beach and Broward Counties. Congresswoman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and discussing this important topic. So tell us exactly, Congresswoman, what what it was the U.N. Security Council resolution approved this week. What, what did it give the green light to in terms of what will be going into Haiti now? 
Well, what we saw in Haiti that rose to the level where we felt like we had to answer the request of the Haitian people was a gruesome situation. So the Haitian people, as of last year, and the um, de facto prime minister requested to have um, troops to help them fight the gangs. The gangs have taken over more than 80% of Haiti. We're getting reports as um, early as last week where they lynched over 200 people next to an elementary school. Um, the, the violent crimes against women just have been um, outrageous. So there's really been a reign of terror on the people. And so what the UN Security Council did at um, this past week was really just respect the self-determination of the Haitian people and honor their request to have troops help them fight the gangs. Um, this is a big step for Haiti. I started calling for a security mission in Haiti probably last December after I had different right. briefings from the UN Security Council. Mm -hmm. And at that point last year, we saw more than 65% of the children being recruited from schools to go into the gangs, which was astonishing. Um, I've never seen those numbers before, right. but it's a constant evolution of more violence. Um, as you probably have heard and known about the um, kidnappings against Americans in Haiti. Right. So the gangs over there have no respect for a life person or even the United States. Anybody can be kidnapped and tortured. Right. Now you use the word troops, but we should clarify though this is not really a military international intervention so much it is a police assistance for example Kenya which is leading this mission is is has pledged to uh, deploy about a thousand of its police personnel in Haiti but we're not talking about really about military troops at this point are we no, you're absolutely correct. I'm happy you clarified that. So they will be, um, the mission is to help the police force fight the um, gangs in Haiti. Right. And so they will be leading that mission, that security mission, and starting with the infrastructure and protecting the people. Uh, that's what they'll be doing there. All right. Now, again, we should uh, uh, remind people, you as as uh, a congresswoman here in South Florida, you supported the UN vote here to send that multinational uh, police security uh, assistance force into Haiti. Now, earlier this year, you and I discussed the need for an outside force to restore some semblance of public security to Haiti for all the reasons that you just outlined, some of them gruesome, as you point out. Can you um, pr pr briefly remind people um, uh, why the, the, the interim government has become so unable to confront these gangs? Why, why, why is there that vacuum in the, in the country? Well, um, there's two things that really led up to this moment. First was the abrupt assassination of um, Moise, President Moise. When Moise was assassinated, um, it, the new prime minister wasn't sworn in at that time. So there was some ambivalence at that moment. And so when Ariel actually assumed his position, many people in the country felt like he was de facto or that he didn't have legitimacy. So when you have those doubts in the country, he didn't really have the support to lead the nation. Um, at that time, also, they still had more of their elected officials in place, their senators. Uh, as of right now, uh, as of January, it just passed, January 2023, um, we saw that all those positions became vacant because there hasn't been an ability to have elections. So it's right. kind of been more of a power vacuum all along. Yeah. Um, you have a de facto president along with no elected officials, and you have gangs who are growing stronger and stronger and taking over neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, if you look at Port-au-Prince, which is the capital, right. the capital has 80% been taken over by gangs. The mm -hmm. gangs have taken over all of the humanitarian crossways, the highways that connect people from different sides of the country. Right. As we said, so, they're suffocating the economy as well, not 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 just the violence, but but the, the economic uh, uh, 
uh, effects are awful as well. Now, now the U.S. supported this action also, although it won't be actually taking part in it, as I pointed out. It will be led by Kenya. Are you confident Kenya is the right country to head this up, especially after reports that its own police are the subject of human rights complaints? Well, my focus has been making sure that we have the safeguards in place to protect every single mission that was to happen. And what I mean by that is that it's important that before we have an organization or a group come in, we don't um, put a label on that group and more have rules in place to protect the human rights of the individuals they're there to service. So we talked about even the waste management system that is in Haiti to prevent any option, any um any possibility of any kind of outbreak such as cholera. The last right. time they had um, intervention, which is very different than what we have now, they didn't have that in place to prevent cholera and other diseases. Yeah. Also, another, if you look at the resolution, another safeguard that has been built into the resolution is that anyone who's actually going into the country will be screened to make sure there's no mm-hmm. issues with their background or anything that they've done in the past or human rights violations. Right. However, I think those two are just our initial safeguards that we have in place. Okay. Um, I've been in discussion with the UN Security Council, Ambassador Greenfield, about what more can we add to make sure that the Haitian people feel comfortable with this mission and that they are actually um, feeling like this mission is safe for them. And it's not as if, you know, their well-being would be collateral damage in trying to be secure from the gangs. So that really... Mm-hmm. No, I, I just have to do the FCC thing here, Congresswoman. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking with Florida Congresswoman Sheila Cheerfulis McCormick about the U.N. vote this week to send a multinational security mission to Haiti. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Congresswoman, there are still questions, though, about what exactly the Kenya-led multinational security forces one year mandate is, especially when it comes to confronting these heavily armed gangs. What important questions are you still waiting to have answered in that regard? Well, I want to know what are the reporting mechanisms for the people who are going to be present? Um, How much and what areas will they be concentrating on that will be towards protecting the people? If we remember when Kenya first went to Haiti and they did their um, observation to find out what should the mission look like, initially we talked about securing infrastructure, but they saw a greater need to protect the people. And what we've been getting more so from the Haitian people is protect them and their neighborhoods, and they want to move back into their neighborhoods. So that's really where we want to see the people being protected and them actually um, their livelihood being restored back in their community, in their homes. So that's what we have to figure out. What is the real scope and how do we achieve those goals? Now, you and I have also discussed and you just mentioned it earlier, why there has been so much hesitation to send a multinational force into Haiti because of the checkered, if not abusive history of previous international interventions there. How, for example, do you feel the Haitian diaspora here as a result, feels about this. Do you feel it generally supports this sort of intervention at this point, given given the circumstances on the ground in Haiti? I think everyone has a hesitation initially because we understand the past. And I think as a country, as Americans, we have to understand the past also and understand where that hesitation is coming from. But I think when you balance it against the atrocities and the terrorism that the people are facing, you have a sense you know, of how can we deny our brothers and sisters the help they're crying out for, right. especially when you're seeing um, videos of them chopping up people's body parts, especially when you're seeing them actually going after church members and torturing them. You know, when you see the gruesomeness of it, 
you weigh the two. And I think that's why the Haitian diaspora has been focusing and shifting towards how do they have input into the mission? How could they help protect the Haitian people? And that brings us right back to the safeguards. Congresswoman, in the last minute we have here, I I should also point out many Haitian American community leaders here had been urging the U.S. and the U.N. not to approve a security mission into Haiti while interim Prime Minister Ariel Henry is still in office there. You, too, have suggested to me in the past that Henri is a big problem. In just the 30 seconds we have left here, why do you and so many Haitian American leaders feel he has to go? Because the um, the country of Haiti has become um, just diminished and he hasn't really taken any real action towards fighting the gangs. And so the, that's another act that the Haitian people have asked for. They have asked for a transition government not including him. And I think we need to respect their self-determination okay. and a transition government would be better than what we've seen okay. Ariel South Florida Congresswoman Sheila Cheerfulis-McCormick represents Florida's 20th Congressional District. Congresswoman, many thanks. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Finally on the roundup, for the first for the past, excuse me, 34 years, only one pit bull has been allowed to roam the streets of Miami-Dade County. And we're talking about the rap singer, Mr. 305. But now, owners of the pit bull dog breed don't have to fear the idea of their favorite fur babies being locked up. They are legal once again. After a pit bull attacked and disfigured a seven-year-old girl in 1989, the breed was prohibited across Miami-Dade County. By law, those who insisted on keeping pit bulls faced $500 fines, court battles, or having their pet removed. That's all changed now that Florida state law prevents local governments from banning dogs of a specific breed, weight, or size. Local governments can still adopt policies to prevent attacks, but for now, you can let the pit bulls out. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis and Julia Cooper. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. Messi. Obrigado. <laughs>